Hi, I'm Esther Yunji Kang. And I'm Susie On. Growing up, we didn't have a lot of good Asian representation in pop culture. Asians were ignored, fetishized, or made fun of. But we're putting all that to rest with this new podcast. It's called Shoes Off, a sexy Asians podcast. Each week, we'll hang out with a badass Asian making waves in film, music, comedy. We'll talk about identity, their work, and how to redefine the word sexy on their own terms. And this is our very first episode. Woo! Woo! Our first guest is comedian, writer, actor, overall dreamboat, Joel Kim Booster. But first, Susie, I texted you a couple weeks ago. I was sitting on the toilet. Thank you for setting the scene for us. <laughs> I wasn't pooping. I was just clipping. Oh, okay, thank clipping, you again for setting the scene for us. <laughs> clipping my nails sitting on the toilet. And I was like, oh, shit, why are we making a podcast right now when there's a billion podcasts out there? Like, what are we doing? I mean, you know, a part of it is to get away from our normal jobs, which is mm. news. And that can be depressing, just generally depressing. But like... In recent weeks, it's even more depressing. You know, I mean, I, I think of like the recent shootings in, in California. Mm-hmm. Those are shootings that affect our community. Mm-hmm. Anti-Asian hate yeah. has been on the rise for yeah. the past few years. And so in a way, like this podcast is sort of like a source of joy for us specifically, hopefully for others. I mean, sexy Asians definitely are a source of joy. And the other part of it is like, I think I really want to celebrate the wins, right? All the great accomplishments that Asian Americans, Asians in general have had trailblazing at so many award shows in so Mm -hmm. many areas. But it's it's also just been really fun to be able to Mm -hmm. talk to these amazing people. Yeah, and just like, you know, celebrate together. Right. For sure. For sure. And originally it was pitched as the Sexy Asians <laughs> podcast. Yes. Um, yeah. That was something that you really wanted to make sure we yeah, had in there. Sexy, the sexy Asians. Asians podcast. What else do we need? Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but like for me, it's just sort of triggering sometimes seeing sexy and Asian next to each other just because, you know, in high school, there was like a construction worker who tried to ask me out by leaving notes on my car addressed to sexy Asian baby. It's like it just goes to like that whole fetish thing. He ruined our podcast (laughs) name. Well, also, I mean, there was also the Google implications, right? Like if you Google sexy Asians, it's it's not good. Don't don't do do it. it. Don't do it. Don't even look it up on Twitter. It's not a good idea. But I mean, adding shoes off is is very uh, culturally relevant, but also like, I don't know, I feel like a little bit of warmth when I think about that. Like I'm coming to my my home, I'm going to a friend's house and I'm taking my shoes off. That's true. But anyway, you know, like the whole idea of sexy, though, it's it's not just about physically sexy or being hot. You know, we're, we're talking to really amazing people. Sexy can be smart. Sexy can be funny, um, talented. Yeah, and we looked around and realized that there are so many sexy Asians out there. In fact, I think there's enough for like 10 seasons Mm -hmm. of of this podcast, Intent to Management. And we are excited to talk to some of them on the show. Yeah, like today, our sexy Asian guest is Joel Kim Booster. He's here to talk about being fetishized in the gay community, embracing his identity as a Korean adoptee, and hitting his stride in comedy and film. That conversation is coming up. Stick around. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. 
More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. All right, Susie, our sexy Asian guest today has beefy traps and an actual six-pack. Yes, he does. But he's not just a pretty face. He wrote and starred in the runaway hit Fire Island. And he's still on on fire. Uh, You can see him on basically every streaming platform, Hulu, Netflix, Apple TV+. And I love his personal story. He was adopted and he grew up right here in the Midwest, not too far from Chicago, actually. And you can tell he's really thoughtful and reflective and also pretty sweet. Joel Kim Booster, welcome to Shoes Off, a Sexy Asians podcast. Wow, what an intro. I truly (laughs) couldn't have asked for a better intro. All right. Well, what we like to do, Joel, at the beginning is ask all our sexy Asian guests, at what point in your life did you think, you know what? I am sexy. I am one sexy Asian. Wow, that's tough. I think um, it probably didn't happen for me until my 30s, honestly. Mm. And I've said this elsewhere, too. I started identifying as hot before I really believed it Mm. myself. And it was a conscious decision I made in my stand-up act, because when I started doing stand-up, I was following in the footsteps of a lot of other Asian comedians who really took the route of saying like, oh, I'm so undateable, I'm so unattractive, I'm so undesirable because I'm an Asian man in America. It's really hard not to internalize that, Mm -hmm. I think, as a performer and as a person. And it really took a toll on my self-esteem. And creatively too, it just became really uninteresting because Mm -hmm. that's what we all were doing, you know? And I don't fault the comedians that came before me because it's one thing to go out on stage and sort of supplicate yourself to the audience Mm -hmm. and sort of put your status lower than theirs. It's easier in, in a way, but it's another thing entirely to go out on stage and say, I'm hotter than you, I'm better than you, and <laughs> to keep the audience on your side. So like I started doing that in my sets before I believed it. And then it slowly led to a really big transformation, not only in my physical self, but in just like my emotional and my mental self. Yeah. So you talk about your physical self, when do you feel like you had a glow up, like a physical glow up? I mean, that happened like late 20s, early 30s. I would say it really started when I quit my day job, basically, Mm. because when I was coming up in comedy, I was working 45, 50 hours a week at a startup. And then I was doing open mics at night and shows at night. And that doesn't leave you a lot of room for self-care. You know, as the deeper I got into the business, the less control over my life I felt like I had. Mm. And I felt like the gym was like one place in my life where I had complete control. That is one source of comfort for me in a world where my entire life is is in the hands of usually some straight white guy in a suit (laughs) at a studio. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, through this podcast, we're trying to reclaim the word sexy. I mean, as Asian women, we are regularly fetishized, like, you know, dudes trying to pick us up by saying something like, I'm into Asian girls, Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that line ever works on anyone. But um, (laughs) I mean, you've experienced this yourself. And and we've got a clip of you talking about that in your 2019 debut stand-up album, Model Minority. There's a lot of guys in the gay community that fetishize uh, Asian men, and uh, we have a, a term for that. We call them rice queens. Um, I'm sure there are many of you in the audience tonight. Um, I have a base of them, you know? Uh, they're the only ones who are going to buy this album, and I've made my peace with that. 
So what are some of the weirdest interactions you've had with rice queens? The one, the big one that I talk about, I believe in both that album and in my Netflix special, uh, it's a different joke about the same story as having a guy tell me after uh, post-coitally that I didn't have sex like an Asian guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, And what I don't get into in the bit is that conversation sort of spiraled into other areas where it was like, he just didn't feel like, I just didn't behave like Mm -hmm. a normal Asian person in bed, whatever the fuck that means. Mm, Yeah. And so I experience like weird dysphoria all the time as an Asian adoptee. Mm. You know, I struggled a lot growing up with like what I was. And, you know, I I think like moments like that really highlight that dysphoria for me where I'm like, am I different? Am I Mm. abnormal? Am I, you know, like, and it pulls me farther away from being able to connect to my identity as Mm. an Asian person when I hear things like that, because it makes me question like, you know, am I a part of this community? (laughs) Is there something about me that intrinsically separates me from the community Mm. that I'm a part of? And it makes me weary of certain types of guys, um, you know, and it's difficult to know, like at the end of the day, if you're going to get back to their apartment and they're going to have a katana on the wall (laughs) and geisha makeup in the wings waiting for you. Um, Oh gosh. It's always the struggle. Well, you know, kind of on the flip side of that, you are currently in a relationship, seems to be going well. (laughs) Um, But that also seems to have invited criticism from people who think, you know, you're too white or not Asian enough. Um, And as someone who is married to a white person, I can I can relate to that. Condolences. Condolences. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how have you grappled with that? I talk about this a little bit in my set now, but. I find myself getting really preemptively defensive and like explaining the kind of white person that my partner is. And I'm always like, you know, I'm the first Asian person he's ever dated. He doesn't even like, he doesn't even like Asian people. He hates Asian people, you know, like, and it it, like, it, it spirals out of control. It is really difficult because there is this sort of like currency that exists online as a person of color Mm. that when you reveal that you're dating a white person, you sort of get docked, Um, you know, like I can't post a photo of my boyfriend anymore Mm. Um, because I know that when I do, I'm going to get like a deluge of DMS. I'm going to get a a bunch of shitty comments on the, on the photo. And it just becomes, it doesn't, it's not worth it for me to, to deal with it. Because the thing is, is like, you know, I would, it would be one thing if I was engaging with people who, we're critiquing it in good faith, mm. but it's mostly just guys saying like, oh, of course you're one of those white worshiping Asian yeah. guys. We always knew you were, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, how do you engage with that? Like what response is there yeah. to that, to a stranger, you know? Yep, yep. You know, we could talk about this all day, but I, I really, really am interested in your comments about being adopted. You were born in Jeju Island in Korea, and you were adopted by a white evangelical family in Plainfield, Illinois. Shout out, Plainfield. (laughs) Um, You talked about not really having a longing to connect to Korean culture uh, when you were younger. So what's that like now? I should clarify that that was the attitude I had as a young person. Mm -hmm. And I think it was born out of wanting to feel as normal as possible Mm. in a situation in which I felt abnormal 
everywhere I went. You know, I didn't necessarily feel like I fit in with the very few Asian people that I was interacting with. I felt sort of locked out of those communities mm -hmm. and I never felt and I still don't feel completely comfortable in communities that are mostly white. You know, it, it is this thing that I think is really specific to Asian adoptees where you're stuck in the middle and you don't know where you fit in and different people have different responses to this, I think. I think I know a lot of Korean adoptees who have sort of thrown themselves into Korean culture or whatever their specific diaspora uh, culture is and really rejected their Western roots. And I celebrate that, but it is not something that like feels right to me. Mm -hmm. Like I am really interested in the experience of of us as a racial group of let, what it means to be Asian American, which is a relatively mm. new term yeah, yeah. that we don't talk about. I think we take it for granted that, you know, we uh, have some sort of unifying factor about being Asian American, but we are made up of many different diasporas and, and cultures. And that doesn't necessarily coalesce into one, you know, monoculture as a race. But I am really interested in figuring out what those things that do bring us together, like the experience of living in white America, yeah. how has that affected us as a racial group? You know, I, I may not culturally align with a Chinese person or a Thai person or any of our Southeast Asian brothers and sisters, but we've all experienced the same mm -hmm. kind of racism. We've all been flattened. Yeah. We've all been sort of like given this cultural identity that was not ours that we did not ask for. And how are we collectively dealing with that as a racial group is, is really the question that I've always been really interested in. And I think that is sort of where I'm at mm -hmm. in my journey. And then quite frankly, like learning where I was born in Korea and the, the history of Jeju. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until I did the research and figured out where I was born mm. that I felt connected specifically to my Korean heritage. And it's something that I really want to delve deeper into as the older I get, the more... <laughs> my heritage has become this thing that I, I really want to um, make a bigger part of my life. Have you ever thought about what it would have been like if you grew up in Korea? Yeah, all the time. Mm. All the fucking time. It's like my sliding doors, like life, mm. you know, like especially knowing where I was born and, and the culture around mm. where I was born. I just, um, it's really difficult because I'm so happy mm. that everything happened the way it did because I'm where I am now, but it's something I think about a lot. Mm. Have you ever read the book All You Can Ever Know by Nicole Chung? Yes, I have. I love Nicole. Nicole was an, one of the Aww. like earliest editors that ever hired me as a freelance oh, writer. Oh, wow. So. That's awesome. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, so she wrestles in the book you know, with a question about whether adoption was a positive thing or not and it's it's very nuanced what would you say about your own experience yeah that's a big question that i've been wrestling with mm. myself and i think that adoption in general is a really complicated issue and it's one that i think we're sort of peeling back the layers on right now and and wrestling with some of the more complicated aspects of adoption i can't go back and change anything about the way I was raised. And I'm really glad that everything that has happened to me has led me to this point in my life in which I'm very happy mm. and feel very together as a person and 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 strong and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
do I think that adoption, specifically transracial adoption, is the best option? I don't. I mm-hmm. think the best option is to put systems in place that keep families together as much as possible and make it so that adoption isn't the option that we're sort of a person is forced into. Mm-hmm. But barring that, you know, that's not the reality that we live in. You know, those systems aren't in place yet. And I think that if there are families out there that are equipped to handle the sort of difficulties of adoption and specifically transracial adoption, then there are children in need who who do need that mm-hmm. right now. I think that white people often sort of downplay the struggle that they are now introducing into a mm-hmm. child's life via the experience of transracial adoption. And, and transracial adoptees have a lot of different opinions about this Mm -hmm. and a lot of different experiences. And I don't want to speak for anyone but Mm -hmm. myself. But I think that the one thing we can agree on is that, yeah, I don't think a lot of white parents who adopt children who are not white understand always the complications that are going to arise from that experience and the dysphoria that's going to happen to their children. So there's just a lot to think about. And I, I don't think there's an easy answer right now. But I do think, again, I think the focus should be on make supporting families and making sure that adoption is the last scenario that, that should occur if, if possible. Yeah. I grew up in Alabama, and I, and I feel like because wow. I knew a lot of homeschooled kids. Yeah. And I know that, that you were someone who was homeschooled until 16. Um, that's like a hormonal time. I mean, oh, yeah. was that just sort of like a crazy time to make? a switch into like a completely different social setting? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is I was always a really sexual kid and it was all in theory for so long. And then I got to high school and suddenly I was smelling Axe body spray for the first time. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, like it went in very quickly from theory to practice. Um, And it was really overwhelming. The opportunities that I had to explore my sexuality suddenly for the very first time. And I came out really quickly after coming uh, to public school. So with those changes and going from like a very evangelical conservative household, were there conflicts with what you were hearing, the messages you were hearing about yourself and your body from a faith perspective from your parents? Oh, yeah. I mean, abstinence was the name of the game in my house, and um, it was very clear that anything else was not acceptable. Mm. And, you know, that's why I eventually, like, it it led to a lot of conflict with my family. And I moved out when Mm. I was 17, didn't really reconcile with my family again until I was, in, you know, basically in college. And it took a long time, and it's still, you know, not necessarily something that has completely healed mm. in my family. And it's certainly like kept them away from my work. Like, I don't know. I think like mm. my appearance on Jeopardy was maybe the first time mm. my mother has ever seen me on television. Oh, um, yeah. But it's not something that I have a lot of grief over mm-hmm. because, you know, I found people to support me mm. in the ways that a lot of people's parents support them. And I don't necessarily need that kind of validation from my family. And mm. I, I let that go a long time ago. 
it's it's interesting thinking about like found family and and I know that you went to high school with drag queen Shea Cole. Yeah. Um and and I love that. I mean it's like, you know, the two of you are like two of three famous people from Plainfield. <laughs> Do you ever get together to look at how far you've both come? Oh yeah. I mean every time we see each other we always sort of kiki and and just like <laughs> laugh. I think like could because neither Shay nor I, I, I think people considered us especially exceptional while we were in high school, mm. you know? And like, I don't think either of us were the people in our class that people would point to and say, yeah, those two are going to make it someday. And so it's really gratifying <laughs> to be those people now. It's lovely. It's you, a really lovely connection. Do you guys let the other famous person from Plainfield, uh, Melissa McCarthy, Kiki, with you guys? <laughs> so much? Yeah, I don't think either of us have interacted oh. or met Melissa yet, um, but she is definitely welcome. She's welcome <laughs> to the barbecue anytime. You touched on this a little bit, but your relationship with your family was brought after uh, your parents found out you were gay. Reading your journal, I mean, that yeah. is that is just crazy. What do you think it will take to heal that? You know, there's a lot of healing that's already gone on. Like I I brought my partner home to see my mom for mm-hmm. the first time. It's the first person I've ever brought home to visit. And I think a big part of that was my dad passed away during COVID. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard on our family. And I think for my mom, especially, you know, it was a big wake-up call uh, almost of we don't have enough time to fuck around you know we just don't and I think that even though she's still very religious and has her own opinions on me and my lifestyle I I I just don't think it's worth it for her Mm -hmm. to hold keep those walls up Mm -hmm. um, and not be a part of my life in in that full way you know and so this person I told her was is really important to me and and she understood that and, you know, didn't want to pass up a chance to be a part of my life in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And so that's growth. And, you know, there are things that we'll never align on. Yeah. But for me, I mean, she's she's been so supportive of this relationship and that's all I can ask mm-hmm. for. Yeah. And, you know, also like later on, your older brother came out as gay as yes. well. I mean, did that yeah. change anything in the family dynamic? I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I've heard that you two are very different people. Yeah, not really. I, my brother's still very conservative, and I think that made it easier. And plus, like, he came out several years after I came out, and so they they had already sort of gone through the trauma once, and I think by the time he came out, it was a little bit easier for them to swallow, mostly because he wasn't out there talking about his life in the way I was, or, you know, being quite as, as sexually open as I was, and uh, I think it was just easier for them to deal with that. After the break, we find out why Joel Kim Booster rewrote the script for Fire Island and dig up his old Tumblr. Plus, we'll play a round of rapid-fire questions we like to call extra credit. Stick around. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You know, we found your Tumblr 
And oh God! <laughs> oh my God! It's so sweet, Joel. It's I don't really know. Sweet. I know how to find my Tumblr at this point. <laughs> well, in your diary, you talk about how in your 20s, you're juggling a full-time job at Groupon. That was the startup. Mm-hmm. And you're performing uh, at Open Mics in Chicago. And in 2014, you wrote, you weren't completely over Chicago. Take us back to that time. And are you are you over Chicago now? Um, you know, having just been to Chicago over the holidays mm. and experiencing sub-freezing <laughs> I can safely say I'm over Chicago. Um, but no, I think like the community of Chicago that I was a part of, I've never felt so supported. And I mm. think that's a really hard thing to leave behind. And it's a really, I think it's why people stay in mm. Chicago for sometimes too long, because it's a really in- intoxicating kind of support, you know, like I have never experienced the kind of support as an artist that I experienced in Chicago from this community of people that just are so interested in lifting each other up. Mm. And then I moved to New York where, you know, I made an incredible group of friends and I don't want to discount that, but everyone was sort of in their own lane, really focused on themselves in a way that you have to be when you're in New York. I don't fault anybody for that. That's I became that person too. But in Chicago, it was much more like looking at each other and lifting each other up and collaborating with each other and figuring out ways in which like, how can my art be in conversation with yours Mm -hmm. and, and create something new and interesting and fun. And the stakes felt so low. It was just like, yeah, let's like, have this night where you know people do stand up and burlesque and like <laughs> mix it all together and see what comes of it. I'm speaking of the Fly Honey show in Chicago, which I believe yes. is still happening. So if you're in so. Chicago and you ever have the opportunity to see the Fly Honey show, please go. It's still to date like one of the most, in terms of energy, just like best experiences of my life. I, um, you know, one of my favorite places to perform today. Yeah. Well, not to stay on Tumblr, but but I think it was your last entry um, was about your sexual failures of 2017. Oh um, my God. If, if you went back to your Tumblr now, what would you write? Huh. It's interesting. It's a muscle that I wish I had had exercised more during the pandemic, but I would probably write a lot about my relationship. I spent so much of my 20s imagining what it would be like to be in love. Mm. All I wanted was a relationship and a boyfriend. And then I hit my late twenties and early thirties. And I, that I let that go a little bit more and I wasn't more interested in having fun, but I I spent so long considering what it would be like to be in love that I, I never really stopped to consider what it would be like to be loved. Mm. And I think like that is the biggest thing that I've really learned in this relationship is that like, it's easy almost to imagine what it's like to love another person. It is one thing entirely though, to be loved and feel loved um, and, and to, to feel it deeply and, and sort of tangibly in your life. It's next level. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something that I can't believe I spent so much of my life not knowing about. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that 2017 Tumblr, Joel, would, would be so proud of you <laughs> yes. now. Um, yes. Congratulations on Fire Island, by the way. Uh, people called it smart, fun, gorgeous, and a Jane Austen adaptation done right and gay. You loosely based the film on Pride and Prejudice. What other books shaped you? Hmm. Uh, some of them are featured in the movie. Runaway, 
that was my first Alice Munro that I've, I read. And I remember being really deeply affected by that book and the stories found within the other book that is featured, but you can't really tell is I'm reading on the beach, Our Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. And mm-hmm. that really shaped a lot of how I view the world politically and sort of the possibility of change that can happen in this country if people really understood the systems that are oppressing us. And those are two big ones that I really felt really passionate about including in the in the movie. The movie was very groundbreaking on, on many levels. It was a rom-com with an all-queer, mostly Asian cast. And the group won the ensemble tribute from the Gotham Awards. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And you cast an Asian love interest in Fire Island. Why was that important to you? I felt it really important for the story that he be a person of color, I think, because of the connection that these two people felt as like outsiders in this space. And when it was a project at Quibi, we had cast an African-American actor mm. in that role who was unavailable when Searchlight picked it up and, and scheduling and everything like that. And so we we sort of scrambled to try and find his replacement. And I, I, I had my heart set on this actor. I, I did not think there was anyone who could be Will for me mm. um, beyond this actor. And I remember they sent a tape of Conrad in mm. and I was very skeptical because I was <laughs> like, it would require me rewriting certain scenes mm. and like there are the dynamic is different. Like I, I was really interested in the, the dynamic of not only just two people of color of different races mm-hmm. and, and, and yeah. sort of the intersection of what they had in common, but also what separated them and, and what they experienced on different levels within the gay community. But then Conrad came in for a chemistry test and it was just immediately apparent. And I remember he walked out of the room and I turned to Andrew on the director and I said, I will rewrite the script Mm. for this man. And I'm so glad I did. And I I think it became something slightly different, but still really impactful to see in the story. And I'm really proud of that aspect of the film. Yeah, he was perfect. I thought like he was just like such oh, a great yeah. Mr. Darcy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, there was a scene that was eye-opening to me in the in the movie. Um, let's hear a little bit of it. There are plenty of other guys. On for the- you. For you, too. No, stop it. Stop talking about this like we're the same. But we are. You and me. No, stop. You want to feel so good so badly that you did all this. And now you want me to feel good, too, because you, I don't know, you feel guilty? Stop pretending like you don't understand how the world works. So that was a scene from Fire Island with you and Bowen Yang, um, who was on SNL. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so you don't shy away from talking about the privilege you have with how you look. Why was it important for you to address body politics in Fire Island? Um, I think it's 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 such a huge pervasive presence in the gay community. You know, like we talk early on in the movie about currency and the different currencies that gay men trade in and and our bodies are a huge factor in that. And I think like it is something that I feel a small amount of guilt in because I've bought in, baby. I've bought into the system that I wanted to critique in the film and it didn't feel right for me to go in and say like, you know, there's intersections because as an Asian man, I am still, no matter how I look, going to be invisible Mm -hmm. in certain spaces in this community, no matter how many abs I have on my body, (laughs) I will still be seen 
and desexualized. And that was like something that I had to really wrestle with in my early thirties of just like, I can't let this, this being going to the gym, going, working on myself. I can't let this be about outward validation because if I do, I will kill myself Mm. trying to get there. But at the same time, like I was like, if I'm going to talk about this in a movie, there has to be a reckoning with myself about like my relative privilege to Bowen and to people who don't look like this. And, and it would feel really disingenuous. And I think I would, I would be called out like rightfully Mm -hmm. if I made a movie that was in part about body image issues within our, the gay community. And I didn't address the fact that I have a rock and bod. So uh, that was a really important scene for me to write. I felt it was it was one of the first scenes we shot too mm. actually um and so it was really difficult and it was like really like going from 0 to 60 mm. with bowen and it was um i think it is one of the most important scenes of the movie and and listen like this movie is my pov mm. it is about me and my experiences and i'm going to address the things that i think need to be addressed but like i hope and i pray that there are movies out there and there are creators out there who don't look like me who are going to create their own narratives about this particular experience within the gay community like mm. i would never claim that this is like the one that addresses it all and addresses it all correctly i i i hope though that people feel energized after seeing this movie into writing their own so you and bowen yang um you're good friends and a mutual friend tried to connect you too but you avoided meeting him at first <laughs> tell us why what happened there i i think it was sort of the method in which we were introduced it was a mutual friend who said uh, sort of verbatim, like, you're both gay and Asian, you should know each <laughs> other. And I think we both felt a similar sort of flattening of mm. our identity in that moment of like, well, there's a lot of other things about us <laughs> that that are not our sexuality or our race. And if this is the only reason you want me to meet this person, then I'm good. You know, <laughs> like I know plenty. And I think like, it made us both prickly and it's unfortunate because I think like, you know, we met maybe a year after that introduction was made and we discovered that, yeah, we do have a lot more in common than just being gay and being Asian. And we complement each other in, in a lot of ways. And he's been so supportive of me and, and I, him, and there is no one I think that understands what it's like to be me in this industry more than Bowen and mm-hmm. I and and vice versa. And I think like there's a version of this story where we're both competing and sort of like shunned yeah. each other because, you know, we have been seen for a lot of the same roles. He gets mm. them. I don't. <laughs> um, but, you know, ultimately, I'm so glad that we came up in an era where competition wasn't necessarily the only option. And we could just say, no, actually, let's be friends. Let's be allies. Let's lift each other up and let's figure out a way to take over the world together because there's room for both of us. Yeah. And I have to say, like, it's really frustrating if like, you know, some some media outlet posts, you know, your picture instead of Bones or Bones instead of yours. I mean, like at this point, I mean, that like happens to us sometimes where people yeah. just confuse us. Yeah, I've been called yes. sweetie. Yeah. yeah. And so that must be frustrating when you're out there and you've, you've put out different work and yet this is still happening that people mix the two of you up. 
Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's deeply frustrating. And it happened just recently in Miami. It, it literally happens so frequently that mm. it's almost, it's like, it's annoying to even talk mm. about now. Like, I just can't believe it's still happening. And mm. it, it's super disheartening for, to both of us when it does, because we feel like we've made so many inroads in like making ourselves individuals mm. in this industry. And when those moments happen, it's just like, nope, we will always be just another gay Asian mm. to these people, you know, because mm. we don't look anything alike. Right, yeah, right, you, right. You should say like, not I, even a little I'm bit. I'm not wearing right. glasses. I don't, I'm not, I'm not. The he one wears with glasses. glasses. I'm like two inches taller. Our faces are completely different. Yeah. We're different ethnicities. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, it, it is. Our, our haircuts are different. I mean, it would happen <laughs> when I was, when I was blonde, it would happen, you know, like it is crazy. Yeah. Well, you've got a serious career in stand-up, acting, and writing. What do you have the most affinity for? When it really comes down to it, I think the thing that I love the most, that if I had to choose what I would do for the rest of my life, it's writing. Mm. Um, I've always been a writer. It's the thing that brings me the most joy and the most satisfaction. Um, Like, don't get me wrong, I hate writing. I hate it. But I love (laughs) having written. Um, That is the best feeling in the entire world. And Mm. I enjoy acting and I enjoy stand-up and I want to do both as long as it's feasible to do them. But if I was locked down, I think the thing that I would want to do the most and spend the most time doing is writing. Mm. Well, Joel, you do so many things so well. Uh, It turns out you could also bake um, the Great American (laughs) Baking Show. Uh, You um, killed it on Celebrity Jeopardy. What else is next for you? Like a clothing line? I mean, any projects (laughs) coming up? Right now... Um, all I have coming up is I'm shooting the season two of Loot, which is Ooh, on yes, Apple TV yeah. Plus, um, which I'm very excited about. And I have written my second movie. And right now we're just looking for a home for it. So yes. uh, stay tuned on all fronts. It's a wedding comedy, right? That is correct. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little more? Um, it's a wedding comedy that explores the experience of being bipolar in a relationship Mm -hmm. Um, and it is very much based in what I put my boyfriend through Mm. (laughs) on a daily basis Um, but yeah that's that's it yeah some studio better snatch it up fast do you think you've made it Mm, yeah I mean I guess there are different levels of that right but Mm. I I feel happy I feel satisfied I feel Mm. like I'm in this moment now where I'm not worried about my future. Mm. And if that isn't making it, I don't know what is. (laughs) Before we wrap things up, we like to play a game called Extra Credit. And that's where we just ask you random questions and kind of make it snappy. Uh, So the first question for you is you claim, I don't know if it was a joke or not, but you claim to be a nationally ranked Bible quizzer. Not a joke. Whoa. That is a real okay. Thing. So, who is your favorite Bible character? Oh wow, um, Delilah. Now, Ooh. I mean, uh, I love a secret haircut. <laughs> <laughs> um, who was your first celebrity crush? Scott Bakula from Whoa. Quantum Leap. Yes, okay. I can yeah, see. That, yes, I that, that dates me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that was definitely it. Who was your first Asian celebrity crush? Definitely Chow Young Fat. Oh, good one. Yeah. Yeah. Rank your Hollywood Mr. Darcy's, and you can count Colin Firth twice for Pride and Prejudice and Bridget Jones' Diary. Huh. Do I include Conrad in this as well? Yes, yes, you can. Oh, then it's Colin Conrad, 
Tom from Succession, and then uh, I guess Colin uh, coming <laughs> up the rear. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite spot in Chicago? That is a tough one. I'm going to say Berlin nightclub. Oh, yeah. Because I have never been messier in my entire life. <laughs> Shoes on or off in the house? I'm sort of loosey-goosey about this. Okay. Uh, my boyfriend, ironically enough, is very pro shoes off. Mm. And I am cool dad. And I say, you know, whatever, fit, you know, whatever you guys feel like. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Korean dish? Um, kimchi. All day, oh, every wow. day. I buy so much of it and just snack on it all day. Just kimchi, no... Just kimchi. Oh, wow. Okay. Straight out of the container. <laughs> all right, so we have two pictures of you from your Instagram. Uh, you're oh, shirtless in both of them. Oh, um, we want you to fill in the blank for It's Giving Blank. So we'll, we'll start with uh, this one. It's a more recent one. Oh, nice. boy. Um, it's Giving Desperation. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's you, <laughs> shirtless, um, looking out a window, and you've got the reflection. This one here is from um, 2009. I'm going to say it's like maybe, um, it seems like it's a family beach vacation, but fill in the blank. It's giving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is giving internalized racism, I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's super cute, though, I think. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> Well, thanks so much, Joel Kim Booster. Uh, you can check out Joel and his movie, Fire Island, on Hulu. You can also catch him on Loot on Apple TV+. Joel Kim Booster, thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. As we chronicle the many people who make up sexy Asian America, we want to be as inclusive as possible. And to be clear, this is a wide interpretation of sexy. So to expand our knowledge and database, we've been asking our friends and their friends of friends about who they think we should talk to on this podcast. Here's what we've got so far. Hi, my name is Josh Kim and I'm from Orange County, California. This is Maha from Chicago's Uptown neighborhood. This is Barry from San Carlos, California. And I like to think that I'm a pretty sexy Asian myself. But who I like to nominate for the podcast is Stephen Yun. He was voted top 100 sexiest man alive, and he really brought Asian male sexuality to the forefront. Someone I think is sexy is Michelle Yeoh. She has such a long career, and after all these like years in the business, it seems like now she's still at the top of her game. Can you interview Hassan Minaj? Because he's funny and has awesome takes on things. And we want to hear from you too. Who's a sexy Asian we should have on the show next and why? Email us a voice memo at shoesoff at wbez.org. We want all the tips. Shoes Off is a production of WBEZ Chicago. This episode was produced by Esther Yoonji Kang, Stephanie Kim, and me, Susie Ahn. Our executive producer is Brendan Banizek. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe. And leave us a five-star rating. It'll help us reach more people and bring you more conversations with sexy Asians. We'll see you next time. Stay sexy. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. 
The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.